So we uh, live in a real world created by God to be a real world where real things happen. This is not make-believe. It is not a video game where one has multiple lives to spend in trying to arrive at some goal, where there are many opportunities for do-overs when one fails. It is not a cinematic event where actors just pretend, where actions are not real, and where events are not permanent because they are not events at all. Instead, this life is for true, as a child would say. It really is, we realize, when a loved one or acquaintance dies, or when some past choice continues to play out in our lives. The old bumper sticker is shown to be prophetic when it proclaimed there are no rehearsals for life. This is it. We live in a real world with real consequences created by the real God. And everything in our experience points to that truth, and yet, seemingly, somehow, we are slow to accept it. A famous author, and I forget his name, that's how fleeting fame really is, facing his own impending death as disease took its toll, said, I know all men die, but I always thought an exception would be made in my case. The world, however, and the things in it make no such exceptions, for we are dealing with the way things are, not the way we wish they could be. And even an atheist who doubts that God is should see the reality of our world, which does exist against all odds, and the resultant consequences of human actions within it and how they are defined by a morality which would not be if there was no God. They ought to wonder how he or she can be so sure that God does not exist and what it would mean to them if God indeed is. The real God made the real world with real consequences, but he has graciously gone beyond that. He has revealed himself to us in many different ways. He has involved himself in our lives, in the lives of all people, the believers, to bring them to maturity and the unbelievers to bring them to himself. He has made a way for humankind to escape the bondage of sin and death that comes from that sin so that we may come to life, which is real life that goes on forever. The sin was real, though, and the death that brought it overwhelming and consuming. It was beyond us. We were without power and without hope. We could not erase one wrong deed, and there were countless wrong deeds for each of us. We could not stop doing wrong no matter how hard we tried, and we must admit we didn't even have it in us to try very hard, though we were afraid of the punishment that would come afterwards, and yet we were quick to believe the lie that we would try harder the next time, and deep down, though, we know that we never could do it on our own. 
And even the little good that we might manage sometimes to do, we knew if we were honest to be too little, too late, and even that good was tainted by the death within us. Because our sin is what it is, and because God is who he is, loving and merciful and forgiving, God acted for us. He did what we could not do for ourselves, but it meant that God would do what we could never have imagined that he would do. He sent his son to die in our place to pay for our sins. Which brings us to our topic today. We are going to talk about something which is symbolic and yet is so real that if not taken seriously, it can bring sickness and even death. Our our subject is right here before us on this table here. Communion, the Lord's Supper, one of the two sacraments which all churches observe. And our text today comes from Paul's first letter written to the Corinthian believers. I'd like to invite you to join me there in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, where we're going to be looking at verses 17 through uh, 34. And, of course, we'll have the, message, the text up on the screen. You can follow along there. Now, broadly speaking, there are three things we learn from the text when it comes to the Lord's Supper that every believer should know. First, we should know what communion looks like when it's observed in an unworthy manner and the results that come from that. And then we ought to understand the right way to observe it and the results which accompany it. And finally, we need to embrace the right way to come to this table. Now, there is a lot of material here, so we're going to have to be brief. But by God's grace, when we get through our text today, we should have a better appreciation of what's happening when we come to the Lord's Supper. So we begin. (laughs) The first statement that Paul makes in this section is kind of startling. Instead of helping, what the Corinthian church was doing did harm. Verse 17 In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That is a resounding indictment. Taking communion in such a way that they were doing harm. Uh, The harm they did is not specified, but from the rest of the text, we can say that they were hurting other people, they were hurting themselves, they were hurting the church, and they were hurting the testimony of Christ. And what's really sad is they didn't even realize it. They thought they were doing right. When I was uh, in my late teens, I, um, I sailed on the oil tankers. I wasn't a Christian at that time, but on one of the ships on which I worked, there was a religious man. He was the first engineer on that ship. He was not very popular, but it didn't have anything to do with his being an officer. The truth is, uh, it is an understatement to say that he wasn't popular. He was despised by almost everyone on board. He had a nickname, Father Ryan. It was pejorative and mocking to the extreme. There was nothing of the father seen in him. 
Uh, but there was a great deal of the Pharisee about him. He, he would sneak around the engine room on his time off, hoping to catch someone doing something wrong. And if he did, he'd confront you, he'd cross his arms, and he'd rack back on his heel and settle into a stance. He'd tilt his head back so he'd look down his nose at you. And then, with what appeared to be a kind of smirk plastered on his face, he would inform you of your incorrigible shortcomings. If he could, if you were silly enough to let him, and most people only let him one time do this, he would get you off in a, to a corner and he would read something out of Leviticus or Deuteronomy to you, fully demonstrating just how bad you were. And if you're wondering how I know so intimately the details of his scorning inquiries, the answer is obvious. <laughs> I endured them on numerous occasions. The sad thing was, he thought he was serving God and doing good, while just the opposite was happening. If that's what it means to be a Christian, men would say, then leave me out. And somehow, I have to tell you, in spite of all of that, I could never raise very much animosity toward the man. And the one time I did let my temper flare, I apologized. Instead of angry, I always just felt kind of sad when I saw him. He's long gone now. But I have wondered over the years since becoming a Christian myself, if he had a relationship with God and was just completely ineffective, or if he only knew the law and is lost forever. It is quite possible to think you are doing good while all along you're doing harm. Don't let that be the case when you come to this table and observe the Lord's Supper. That letter Paul wrote those many years ago describes uh, what the communion looks like in the Corinthian church. We're going to be quick here, but we're going to go through some of the points. And the most important problem is, is that instead of unity among believers, there was division where there ought to have been unity. So verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe that. You know, Paul didn't know how deep the divisions were, but he knew they were there. That much um, was obvious from the things that he had heard. And then there were those there who were, well, how do I put it? Living in serious sin, as verse 19 indicates. No doubt there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. See, some didn't have God's approval because of their lifestyle. And it's beyond um, what we can do here this morning, but if you read through this letter, you'll get an idea of the kinds of things that were going on there. And there was also a lack of concern for others, including a cold attitude toward the poor, poor, which translates as a heart despising the church. Verses 20 through 22. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. That was a stinging impeachment, isn't it? I mean, what they were doing didn't even resemble the real thing. For when you're eating, verse 21 says, 
Some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk, to which Paul remarks, don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. I think, as I read that, I hear, I think you can hear too, the anguish of that pastor's heart as he writes those words to those Christians. How could you let this happen, he seemed to be saying. You see, in that day, there was an actual meal that people shared together, kind of a reenactment of the Last Supper. And we've reduced it, we've streamlined it to the essential elements of the bread and cup. For them, though, it was a complete meal. But it was a meal that was meant to mark the self-sacrifice of the Lord of heaven for sinful beings like you and me. But their focus was almost laser-like on themselves. And what's amazing about all of this is, I mean, truly, it's amazing. You could hardly have done a more effective job in making a mockery out of communion if you would set out to do so. To honor Christ at his table, you would have to do the opposite of what they were doing. You would have to seek unity while putting away divisions. You you would have to put away your sin by confessing and repenting before you approach the table. You, You would be genuinely concerned for those around you, wanting only what is best for them, no matter the cost to you. But the church in Corinth, they seem to have gotten everything wrong. So what happens? What happens then if your observance of the Lord's Supper is too much like what we read here in this letter to the Corinthian church? Well, we can see the results at the end of uh, verse 30, the end of the result in verse 30. Uh, That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Such is the verdict pronounced and executed by the Lord, weakness, sickness, death. And if that seems, does it seem a little harsh to you? Then there are really two things to be said. First, far from being an act of mere punishment, this is actually an expression of God's love for them. Verse 32, Nevertheless, when we're judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. God disciplines those he loves. And if you don't belong to him, he doesn't discipline you. But he does if you're his. Hebrews puts it this way. We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, which they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good in order that we may share in his holiness. Because he loved us, he will do what's necessary to make us holy. And second, if you think this is too harsh, it it really is only because you don't understand the magnitude of the matter. Look at verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Those words, if you hear them, if you take them seriously as I think they're meant to be taken, would come close to freezing your blood if you thought that you had done that. I can hardly imagine anything worse short of the unpardonable sin of rejecting Christ. And yet, as bad as that was, instead of being cast into outer darkness for such a dreadful thing, we're disciplined as errant children who are dearly loved and that by God. The Corinthian church was a model of what not to do. There were divisions and sin and self-centeredness which blinded them to those around them. And their meetings did more harm than good. And God found it necessary because he loved them and because the matter was so grievous to discipline many of them. Some were sick and others were weak and some had even died. So if that's the way it is, If that's the way it is with communion, why would anybody bother with it at all? Why take the chance? Well, the full answer to that is beyond our reach. We're going to have to wait for another day and time when the Lord himself will teach us. But we can say this much now. The Lord's Supper or communion is a sacrament. That is, it's a special avenue through which God blesses his people. I have to tell you, different denominations understand that in different ways, and we're not going to go into all of that now, but we here believe that as we observe the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, then we are putting ourselves in one of the best positions and maybe the best position Spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, our hearts and our minds are attuned. Our souls are open so we may partake of God more deeply than at other times as he makes himself available to us. It it could almost be compared uh, to living in a cold, dark world, but there's one place in all that world where you could go where the sun would rise out of the mists and warm you to your very core. This supper, this communion, was one of God's greatest parting gifts given to his people. It's something he eagerly, he tells us so, he eagerly desired to eat that last supper with his disciples, to be a part of it with us. This table is his idea. And Paul says as much in verse 23 and following, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And and what was that, we wonder? What was it that the Lord gave Paul to pass on to us? Well, we remember it every single time we come to this table. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Followed by, in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It is so simple and yet so awesome. It can be a full-blown meal or just a a piece of a cracker and a sip of wine or grape juice. And we are in the presence of God in a special way. How often have have you felt him here at those times? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, there are some people that are afraid to ask that question I just asked. They, they won't ask it because they know how fickle we are. <laughs> uh, they're afraid that we'll begin to seek an experience rather than the Lord himself. But I can't deny the truth. I'm well aware of the fact that there are some people who never have that kind of thrill. That God made them different but no less as his child. And what happens in their heart and mind at such times is no less powerful and life-changing than what happens in mine, and yet it is good for them to hear, to know what we have known, and it's an encouragement for others, and it's good for us to know that others experience God's grace in this matter without that attending emotions, demonstrating it something beyond mere emotion. But how amazing. How wonderful and beautiful. How like our Lord to reveal things, the things of heaven, in a way that even a child can begin to understand. As bread and wine nourishes our body, so the Lord himself feeds our soul with his self, with his presence. He gives us himself. He imparts to us real life. The Lord's Supper is, in a sense, dangerous if you approach it in the wrong way. But, oh, how wonderful it is when you come as you should. There's a really delightful and insightful episode in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The four children, um, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, have found their way into the magical world of Narnia. They meet Mr. Beaver, who tells them about Aslan, the king of the jungle, who, as it turns out, and as they should have expected, is a lion. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We come into the presence of the king at this table. He's not safe, but he's good. And good things come from that when we observe his supper as we should. I mean, you already understand, don't you, from what we've talked about before, that if we go about this thing in the right way, then we will be united and not divided. We will keep short accounts with God and with men as far as sin is concerned, and we'll be concerned for those around us. But we're also told something else in this text, that observing in the Lord's Supper in a manner similar to the way he first gave it to the church, means also that we declare him to the world. Verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death and we demonstrate that, uh, that we believe and we know that he's coming again. So how is that? How is it that we, by partaking of this, uh, this sacrament, declare the Lord, his death and his return to the world? Mostly they don't see us do this, do they? No. And, and you know, there are even people out there who aren't even aware that we even do this thing. So how does it happen that you and I, because we observe the Lord's Supper, end up declaring him to the world? Well, it happens because of the change that comes upon us from such times. Like Moses coming down off the mountain after meeting with God, his face shone and everyone could see that he'd been with God. So we too are changed and people somehow sense that change. Second Corinthians 3 puts it this way, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And we all who with unveiled faces, nothing standing between us and God, we reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Coming from the presence of the Lord, we glow. If you worked in a perfume factory, everyone would know it when you walked by. God is at work in us, changing. And that change matters to the people around us. Maybe you can think of it this way. Jesus was completely holy and righteous, but the worst of sinners were attracted to him because of who he was. And we are being remade into that image. The Corinthian church was a motto of what not to do. There were divisions and sin and self-centeredness which blinded to them and was around them. Their meetings caused more harm than good. And God found it necessary because he loved them and because the matter was so grievous to discipline many of them so some were weak and others sick and some had even died. But for those who come to this table in a manner that pleases God, where we're unified, where we've confessed and repented of our sin, we care about those who are around us. He meets with us here. He gives himself to us. He pours himself into us so that we become the aroma of life in a dark and dying world. Finally, the text tells us, and we're going to be very brief here, it tells us how we should come to this table if we want to honor God. Well, we need to take the time if we want to come to this table, right? To take a good hard look at ourselves. Verses 28 and 29. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of this bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Followed by verse 31. But if we were more discerning in regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. We take the time before we eat and drink, to examine ourselves. 
And I have to tell you, if you take your cue from both the Old Testament and New Testament, I think Paul was assuming this here, then you're going to ask God to do the searching. The psalmist put it this way, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. And Paul, following after the way, says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. When we examine ourselves, if we really want to know just what is in our hearts, then we'll ask God to do the searching. He'll turn over that rock that you don't want to look under. But once he does it, you'll be glad he did because it'll set you free. Come to this table in a worthy manner. And you'll be changed. You'll be different. It, it may not seem like much to you, but a mountain has been moved. A sea has been pushed back. Eternity has been altered. And you, sinner that you are, have become a little bit more like Jesus Christ. That's why we come here. Now I'm going to ask the guys that are going to help me to come forward. But after that message, I hope you have some understanding of why every communion Sunday I make these comments. <laughs> I remind people that this table.